you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids club, and we are also excusing trailblazers, I think up to 10, so that they can work on the Christmas program. So if that's you, you know it. I have no idea how late you stayed up Tuesday night, or how well into the early morning you stayed up Wednesday, or whether you woke up to Wednesday morning to find out that we had elected Donald Trump to be our president. Now, if you've leaned into social media or media or had a conversation with anybody, you might recognize that for some, this is like the single greatest thing that's ever happened. And for others, it might be the single worst thing that's ever happened. And most people, it seems, fall somewhere in the middle of some sense of insurity. So I want to remind us as a church, pastorally, that we have a king. And as I reminded you last week, our king ruled on Monday, and he ruled on Tuesday, and he ruled on Wednesday, ruled every day this week, and he will continue to rule and reign for all of eternity. That is our confidence as believers. And then I want to remind us, as God's people, to watch our rhetoric. As I've gotten messages and emails from both sides of the fence, from people who've been absolutely hurt and wounded by the careless words of believers. So can we just be mindful of that a little? My own family has been torn apart this week just by backlash and this and that and the other because people are not careful with their words and are basically saying, if you don't agree with me, you're an idiot. And that's sad. And it's not befitting of God's people. So I just want to ask us pastorally for a minute that we might, rather than calling names, lean into people and ask them questions about where they are or why they went a particular direction. And we might find that to be a whole lot more profitable conversation And as my children's book says, that's all I'll say about that. We are working through a six-week series on prayer, looking at six things that Jesus taught his disciples to pray about. That they watched him, they saw him, they heard him pray, and then they asked him, Jesus, what should we pray about? And so he puts before them these six principles, these six things to pray about, And as a church, we look at these things, that if Jesus would teach his disciples and say, hey, these six things are important, then we as his modern day disciples ought to heed that, that these ought to be things that show up in our prayers regularly. Now, I'm not trying to teach you like words that you should say verbatim, but you would find that there are six concepts here that serve as a spiritual reset to align us with kingdom values, to align us with kingdom priorities, and to keep Jesus at the forefront of our prayer life. We put these things before you so that you would incorporate them in your prayer lives because Jesus thought they were important. So as as we have done every week, as a matter of focusing in on these words, I'm going to ask you to join me in saying them again with everyone following the words on the screen so we stay together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the text as it shows up in Matthew. We have worked through it phrase by phrase this morning. We are going to lean into the fifth one, which says, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So as we lean into this, the context of this prayer obviously is the whole prayer. Because as you come to these phrases, they're all built upon the others and they stand on them. So we walk back through it. Jesus gave us these words to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That when we pray to God, each and every time we pray to God, Jesus would call us to recognize these two great realities. That on one hand, He's a holy, righteous, and completely transcendent God who's ruling on an eternal throne, and He will never, ever leave that throne, right? Doesn't get voted out. Doesn't have to be reelected. He's there eternally, from eternity past to eternity future. He's ruling and reigning. And at the same time, We can't miss this. This most high, most holy God, we are called to come to boldly and confidently, according to Hebrews 4, because of the work of Jesus. If you've believed in Jesus, according to John 1, you're declared a child of God, making him your father. So when you pray to him, you stand before the eternal throne room of God, before a holy God, not in the muck and mire of your sin, but in the glorious redemptive righteousness of Christ. Now, I put that out for you each and every week and will again next week. Because we need to be reminded of that, do we not? Of the holiness and righteousness of God, and yet our worthiness to stand in His presence because of Jesus. It's not me. It's not my works. It's not my accomplishments. It's what Jesus did for me on my behalf of the cross that I can come before this holy God and be welcomed into his presence. So when we call out his name, those, we reflect those realities. And secondly, we pray your kingdom come. And we're reminded that it's about his kingdom coming in my life and his kingdom coming to my family, my friends, my neighbors. That if it's about the king, it's about his mission, and it's about people who do not know Jesus. So we pray for the world. And as we've done every week, we look at a different people group. This week, the Joshua Project Unreached People Group that would encourage us to pray for is the Kwashkai people of Iran, a tribe of nearly a million of whom there is currently no known believers. So we want to pray as God's people, as his church, that God would release the Kwashki tribe to know the saving grace of Jesus and to be freed from the prison that is Islam. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're reminded of this kingdom priority. 
That just as the Quashki tribe in Iran need to hear of Jesus, so do many people in my family. So do many of my friends, many of my neighbors. I can't point to my coworkers because I would, you know, point out Avis. I mean, she's a Sioux fan, but we'll give her a little credit. Somebody should tell her to listen to this. It'll make her laugh. When we pray your kingdom come, we're reminded of these kingdom priorities. That it's the job of a believer to make him known, and it resets my mind to his kingdom. That as I come before him to pray, recognizing who I'm talking to, that having a kingdom priority will change some things in me. It'll reset me and get me back to where I need to be. And so thirdly, we pray your will be done, acknowledging that God's will for our lives is obedience. That we're called to follow his words, his actions, and his commands, both his moral commands and his missional ones. That our lives would reflect his character by leading a life with purity. That our lives would reflect his teaching by sharing his words and his mission. So that we would be a people who would pursue what Jesus calls us to do. Not out of guilt or obligation, but out of a sincere love for a man who stepped in and died on our behalf. Just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when faced with a difficult path, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. We're called to submit our wills to Him, to place ourselves under His authority, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to seek a greater dependence on Him and a greater obedience for Him in our lives. So as we look through those first thing, three things, you will recognize they're all about him. His name, his kingdom, his will. We exalt him, being reminded that he is God, that he is sovereign, he is in control, that he rules. And then we'll find that these last three point to my complete dependence on him. And so the fourth one we looked at last week was give us this day our daily bread, reminding me That everything I have comes from him. Everything. That as I sat down yesterday to grill a tri-tip for my family, it came from the Lord, not from me. That as we prepared a meal, it wasn't out of Ben's generosity that we accomplished this. It was God's gracious provision in my life, meeting my needs and the needs of my family That God doesn't just meet my spiritual needs, he meets my physical ones as well. And that I live completely dependent on him. And all of the provisions he provides for me, just as he provided for the Israelites in Exodus 16, I'm to be reminded through his provisions of his faithfulness. Not just to provide for me, but to deliver me. That was his message in Exodus 16, which brings us to this fifth thing to pray about. Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive also, as we also forgive those who, I can't even read. This is what happens when you know it in like six versions. As we forgive also, it's wrong on the screen. Because I copied the screen out of my notes. What we get. As we forgive... You 
You know I'm a putz, right? This is clear. As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is why we don't trust the screen. The screen's there to help you. Trust your Bible. It's not in your Bible. Don't look at the pastor. He doesn't know what he's doing. Trust God's word. There we go. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That in addition to our daily bread, we also need our daily pardon. And if acknowledging that our daily bread comes from him is hard, I suspect this might present a greater challenge. Because it requires us to admit that we fall short. That we fail. That we can't in and of ourselves do it right. And that can be a challenge, at least it is for me. So Jesus teaches us to pray that, we'd be forgi- that he would forgive us our debts. Which first will require us to admit that we have debts. And second, require us to admit that those debts require forgiveness. So let's consider those two pieces. First, we have debts. I have debts. And this word debt here is a synonym for sin. And John Calvin explains the word use this way in his commentary. This is what Calvin writes. He calls sins debts because we owe a penalty for them. And we could in no way satisfy it unless we were released by it from forgiveness. That our sin causes a debt. That we've spent money we don't have. Another commentator put it this way. When we sin, it's like digging a hole. We cause an emptiness. And the only thing that fills it is forgiveness. And we all do this, correct? We all sin. Paul writes about this in Romans 7. Romans 7.15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. A couple verses later, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he finishes it by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul paints this picture in Romans that is all of us. I set out with good intentions and I fail. I set out to do these things and end up doing these things. I don't want to do this and I end up doing it. And I suspect... That's all of us. And in fact, if that passage doesn't describe you, then we're going to let you preach for a while. Because you've conquered sin in a way that no one else has. See, sin holds sway in all of our lives. All of us. And not just generic sins, specific ones. Anger. Lust selfishness, misplaced priorities. And these are just the easy ones to come up with. In fact, if you were to spend more time in your Bible, one of the great things Scripture does for us is reflect for us our shortcomings. So let's lean into the Bible and come up with a better list. Am I loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, according to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven? Am I loving my neighbor as myself, as it says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, Am I doing all things without grumbling or complaining? Philippians 2, 14. 
Am I casting all of my anxieties upon him? 1 Peter 5, 7. Am I only saying the things that are helpful for building others up according to Ephesians 4.29? We're guilty, right? That's just what came out of my journal this week. We, all of us, are guilty of specific sins, not just general ones. And I'd illustrate it for you like this. I have a 7, 5, and a 3-year-old. And when one of them does something wrong, I sit it down and I explain it to them. And then I ask them to apologize. And my kids do what I often do. They quickly blurt out, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? As if they don't even understand what the words mean. As if it's actually one long word with a succinct meaning that basically means they can get on to what they wanted to do earlier. So often I'll clarify, what are you asking for forgiveness for? What did you do? And I'm amazed at the number of times they don't know. That they're just wanting to get rid of this feeling or this moment where I'm sitting on their chair and they're looking in my eyes. They just want it over with. So they say the thing that they want to say to get the moment over with. Rather than knowing what they did and the impact that it had and the frustration that it caused, or the cleanup, or the mess that's going to be required, I'm reminded that I'm just the same as my kids. I'm just a bigger, heavier sinner. And that's true of all of us. Which brings us to the second part. That if our debts require forgiveness, and they do. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Basically, that by our sin, the payment for our sin, the earned capital of our sin is our death. That there is a payment that is required, but that's not the whole story, is it? No, there's a free gift that's given to us through Jesus Christ that we're forgiven of our sins when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and then we're called to continue to confess our sins. John the disciple gives us the answer, gives us the path we need in 1 John 1.9 when he writes this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, if you write in your Bible, highlight this one. For this is a great and a true promise of God that we all ought to put into practice more. That when we confess our sins, He forgives us. That's what the promise says. Which is to say that if we pray that our debts will be forgiven, that it has to start with us confessing sin and not just the general sin my kids try to get away with. Or their bigger dad tries to get away with. But that we confess specific sins that we're guilty of. I grew up Catholic. And from time to time growing up Catholic, my family would go and practice confession. All of theology aside, I would go and meet with a priest. And in anticipation, I would sit there and start to think about how this meeting would go. 
And as a young teenager, I would start to dream up things to talk about. Right? I didn't want this guy to know me. I just wanted him to know what I wanted him to think about me. So I'd kind of process my list. I sure can't tell him the truth. But I don't want him to think I'm perfect either because then he might have some expectations of me. So what can I say that I did that's kind of wrong but not too wrong? How can I come up with a little bit of a list that paints me in the right perspective of how I want to be seen? And I do the same things with God now. I don't want to admit that which I'm utterly guilty of before the Lord because I don't believe the promise. And yet God would call us to be real, to be honest, to be forthright. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in a way everlasting. Look at the psalmist. It says, search me, God. Look at every single part of my life. Start with my heart. Not even what I do. But what I'm thinking about doing, what I'm dreaming of doing, and, and my thoughts, and my ways. The psalmist puts it before God, search me, show me all of my sin, and show me where I fall short. Now, would God put that in there for you and for me as a setup? As a statement that says, yeah, pray this, and then show me. I'll wallop you. And I'll show you what you really deserved. No. See, what God the Father will say to you is, search him out. Pray. Ask God to reveal all of this to you. And then remember what it says in 1 John 1.9. Because he gives us a clear path for confession and repentance. And it starts with confession. That all believers in Jesus Christ are called to confess first to the Lord. Again, the psalmist writes in Psalm 51. And I just take a moment and remind you that this is David who committed adultery. If you want to consider it this way, he looked at old century porn. Then brought that woman into his house, committed adultery with her. Then had her husband killed off. This is a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he sought forgiveness. This is what David writes. Against you, you only have I sinned and did what is evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David comes before God and confesses his sin outright. Now, does this give us permission to sin on and on and on and on? Paul would write in Romans, may it never be. But what it does do is tell us that in the book of Romans, in the seventh chapter, when we do the thing we don't want to do, when we struggle in things we don't want to struggle in, when we set out with a good intention and we fall short of it, that we confess that to a righteous and a holy God who will receive us in full grace because of Jesus. 
that we confess our sins to him. And then as James, the half-brother of Jesus, would add, and by the way, don't ever miss that. James, the half-brother of Jesus, you think you had a hard brother growing up. This dude grew up with Jesus. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James calls us to confess our sins to one another. First, we'll stop here for a moment just to say that you might have sinned against somebody. If you haven't gone to the person you've sinned against, you should. The Bible makes it clear before you present your offering to the Lord that you go and make that right before you come back. We've preached that twice in the last year. On July 17th, we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And then we did a whole series on relational hygiene. What does it look like to be in regular relationships with people when we're asking for forgiveness and we're granting forgiveness? We confess to people that we've sinned against to repair the relationships with them. And secondly, I think James writes this, that even if you didn't sin against them, you confess to one another, according to James, so that you might pray together. And that in praying together, you might receive healing. One, because now you're praying about it with somebody. Two, because you'll be reminded that you're not alone in sin. You'll find fellowship amongst people who are struggling. And three, because you'll receive accountability to hold you up. James tells us when we sin, confess it to one another. That's a command, by the way, that we're called to practice. So when we confess our sins, according to 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. Just to say that when we have confessed We now have to remember his word, to remember his promises, to take God at his word. If you remember years ago, that's what we defined faith as. Taking God at his word and living like it's true, this applies here. That if you've confessed your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful. Because he sent his one and only son to die on your behalf. He is faithful and he's just. Because the penalty for your sin was already imposed on his son. Justice has happened. So when we don't buy into that, when we don't believe our own forgiveness, we make light of the cross. And maybe he isn't as faithful as I thought. Or maybe his justice is skewed. And believer in Jesus Christ, I assure you it isn't. Of the things you want to question God about, that ought not be one. That what Jesus accomplished for you when he sent his son to die on the cross for you, God the Father knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it specifically and purposefully and had you, plural, all in mind when it happened. We trust him when we confess. 
We trust his faithfulness. We trust his justice. And we trust his forgiveness. We will be forgiven and cleansed. And that brings us around to the first part of the prayer, does it not? That when we pray to the Father, even in confession, when we pray to the Father, even in confession, we stand before Him, not in the muck and mire of our sin, but in the glorious redemptive righteousness of Christ. Which is to say... When you stand there wanting to pray to God, having committed some of the worst sins you can conceive of, when you acknowledge it before a holy God, he's not standing there with a whooping stick. He's standing there ready and right to hear you because you've already been made right because of the cross. And you stand in his presence because of the cross. And that your confession is less about the cross It's more about you having a right relationship with the Father. He's already forgiven you because He loves you. And because His Son completed the work at the cross, Jesus does not need to be re-crucified for you. What John ends with, He cleansed us from all unrighteousness. You're clean. That's what the promise says. That if we confess He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So finally, having confessed our sins as a means to having our debts forgiven, please note that there's an additional phrase there that I don't have time to dig into as much as I would like. Because the phrase says, as we have also forgiven our debtors. That what that phrase suggests when put together is when we stand before holy God, and by the way, this is a prayer taught to believers, not unbelievers. That when you stand before a holy God asking for forgiveness, it's taken for granted that you would have forgiven others. It's taken for granted that you would have already sought out other people you've wronged and asked for forgiveness. Why? Oh, friends, that's when I'd remind you of the parable of the unforgiven servant, which we preached on July 17th, if you want to search out that podcast. Because we owe God literally billions and billions upon billions upon billions. And sometimes we don't want to forgive a $10 sin. And that testifies to our belief in the gospel. And what Jesus would put before us is that we would pray for seeking forgiveness through our confession because we are forgivers because of their confession. That our ability to show forgiveness shows our ability to love him, trust him, believe in him. And the text seems to suggest we're forgiven because we're forgivers. That if we're going to ask for mercy, and if we're going to ask for forgiveness for our sin, then we need to be a people who show mercy and show forgiveness for our sin.
So as we lean into this text where Jesus teaches us to pray, he tells us to pray to a God who's holy and righteous, whom we can have a relationship with. He tells us to pray that a kingdom priority would be real to us. He tells us to pray for a greater obedience in our lives. He tells us to pray that we would be thankful for everything God is doing for us to provide for us. And he tells us that we should go before him regularly to confess our sins, believing that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. That we stand before God praying in his glorious, redemptive righteousness, not in the muck and mire of our sin because of the work of Jesus. So now the only way I think we can befittingly close this service would be if we had a time of confession. That each of us would take a moment and Seth is going to come forward and he's going to play a song that will probably last a minute or two, maybe longer. If it gets longer, maybe we can all feel uncomfortable. But what I want to ask you to do as we close this service is to take a moment. And if you need to start in Psalm 139 and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try and know my thoughts. I want to put that before you for you to pray before the Lord. And if you stand here totally aware of your sin, that you might put that before him too. In complete An absolute belief that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. When Seth completes playing the music, I will end us in prayer and then we'll move to.
Father, there's not one of us in this room that is not a sinner. That is abundantly clear. There's not one here who hasn't radically offended you with our self-righteousness, self-dependence. Father, there's great freedom in that for us. Because one of the things your book would make clear to us is that my sin has caused such an incredible chasm that I could never dig myself out of it. It's caused such an incredible chasm and a huge gaping hole, Father, that I could never fill it. Yet the other truth of your word is that your grace so completely and lavishly fills it because of Jesus. Father, that your word makes plain and clear my sin and it makes plain and clear your grace. So Father, as a church, we want to be a people that confesses our sin to you. So that we might receive the grace and the mercy that we need to walk out in confidence of our forgiveness. Trusting you for what your son accomplished at the cross. And trusting you as you guide us and lead us in carrying out your mission. Father, we love you. We are so, so thankful for your son who stood in our place and died on our behalf and paid our penalty so that we could stand in his glorious redemptive righteousness. Amen. Just come forward for this morning's offering and let's just pray. Heavenly Father,